from the book of Genesis. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. We're in week five of this sermon series on Genesis, and we've been looking at the life of Abraham, who so far has been pretty faithful. So far, he's been faithful in leaving his home, right? He was faithful in his hospitality and welcoming God through his gifts. He was even faithful in repenting to the Lord and offering up his son Isaac. But there's one area of his life that he wasn't all that faithful in, one area that he actually has problems with faithfulness. And, and can, I, can I ask you what you think that is? It's in his marriage. And this is something, you know, marriage is one of those places where you might see people who have it all together everywhere else, but their marriage can be a very difficult place. I mean, think of how many politicians and celebrities, you know, American royalty, have it all together except this one particular area of marriage. I just saw, I don't know if you saw this on the news in this past week, that there's um, a former mayor, let's say, of a large city. Did you hear about this? Uh, He's apparently going to be separating from his wife so they can date other people but they aren't divorcing, and they will be living in the same house together. Think about that for a second. You know, I guess there's going to be a reality TV show that he's going to market after that. I'm really not sure. Uh, In Abraham's case, there was the Hagar incident, having a wife with his, uh, having a child with his wife's servant. But, But there's also two other instances in Abraham's life before and after this that are pretty significant. The first of which is, uh, well, actually, they both are the same thing. Abraham goes into a foreign land. He encounters a ruler of great power. He's kind of afraid, and I guess his wife Sarah is pretty attractive, and so he says, hey, look, I don't want them to kill me to take you, so let's do this. Just tell them you're my sister, right? And then you can kind of go off with them, and, and then they'll leave me alone. And she does it, and they do that twice. He just kind of passes off his wife as his sister so he doesn't get in trouble. Now, tell me, is there a Hallmark card in the world, right, written well enough to, do that, to, to fix that problem, a, a flower, you know, bouquet of flowers? No, of course not. Well, we're going we're gonna to be looking at this text and seeing, you know, what is a good marriage made of? Why can it be so difficult, this sacrament? And what makes it so important? And I've got two points for us today when we talk about the sacrament of marriage and about what it's like, what it is to be faithful in this. And so our two points today are, point one, the match made in heaven, and point two, the bride of Christ. So we have the match made in heaven and the bride of Christ. Point one, the match made in heaven. And our text for this morning, Abraham is getting older, and so he's looking to pass on the leadership of his family to someone else. And so he's, you know, someone else being Isaac, his son. And so he sends his servant back to the land that he came from, back to his home, and he looks to find Isaac, a wife, from among those people. Now, put yourself, I don't think enough people do this. Imagine being the servant in that situation, right? Like your lifelong boss is saying, hey, go find a suitor. Go find somebody suitable, I guess, for my son, right? Go be matchmaker for my child. I mean, that's an amazing amount of pressure. You know, you don't want to mess that one up. And so the servant goes out, and he says, you know, I guess I should probably pray about this. And his prayer is actually very specific. He's like, Lord, give me direction. I'm going to pray for 
And then he picks a really great quality to pray for. He says, you know, give me a sign, find, uh, bring me a young woman who would offer to draw me water from this well. And she'd be so caring and so hospitable and compassionate that she would not only offer water for me, but for my camels also. And by the way, there's ten of them. And I imagine that a camel can drink a lot of water. Now, I've never operated a well manually. Has anybody done that here? I mean, I feel like that was a while ago. You know, but that seems like a lot of work. It seems like a lot of work. And so he's got very high standards in, in this person that he's looking for, uh, for Isaac to be his wife. Somebody who has the sort of care and self-giving that a godly marriage requires. Laying down one's life, putting aside one's own needs for the sake of the other. And approaching marriage in any other way doesn't work. We can say this confidently because as a culture, we've actually tried this. I referenced this a few months ago, but you know, in the post-Freud era, marriage has become a lot less about giving oneself to another person and more about getting one's own perceived needs met, more about self-gratification. What can you do for me? And this idea sort of culminated in this text. I looked it up, a 1968 book called the mirages of marriage. It was supposed to be revolutionary, change all of our lives, have this perfect model for what a marriage should be. And it was built on, as I've mentioned, this idea of a quid pro quo relationship. You do something for me, I do something for you, and we both, you know, we both benefit. And that the book suggested is if you want a really healthy marriage, you and your spouse should tally up all the good things that you do for each other. And then you should tally up all the good things that your spouse does for you and just kind of make sure that the ledger's balanced, right? And what's astounding about this is our culture bought this for 10 years. Nobody even thought to do any research on this to make sure that it worked. Now, has anybody been married here for more than five minutes? You think that works? No, of course it doesn't. They were, these couples were miserable. What research showed instead was that happy couples do good for their partners simply because they love them and want what is best for them without seeking a return. Approaching marriage as a 50-50 proposition doesn't work because there are days, potentially weeks and months, that your spouse might be operating at 20%. And if you're only going 50, well, then who's going to fill that gap? If somebody doesn't step into it, it becomes a place of bitterness and resentment and marital decay, doesn't it? Rebecca, in our text, is exhibiting in this radical hospitality, this self-giving, this care that a godly marriage requires. It's our first C, by the way, care. She also demonstrates courage. As a servant is invited to meet her family, he finds that they are relatives of Abraham and that she is a perfectly suited spouse for Isaac. And the servant's elated. I mean, he's so excited. He, he did it. He, he found the person. And so he wants to leave right away. I mean, they've got a long hike. They've got a desert to cross, right? It's no small trip. And so he's like, all right, this works. Let's go. Well, you imagine her family's like, well, just, you know, can you hold on a second, right? Because we're about to give up our daughter for, forever, and uh, we'd like to spend, how about 10 days celebrating and feasting with her and just enjoying her and getting a chance to say goodbye. And, and, and you know, it's not really an unreasonable request. She is about to leave everyone and everything she has ever known. But the servant insists. And so the family asks Rebecca, what do you want to do? And Rebecca responds, 
I will go. The only three words that she speaks in this text. Now consider what she's saying when she says, I will go. Leave your home, your family, travel across the desert to a foreign land, and marry a man you have never met. Now, this isn't advice I'd necessarily give to my own daughter, right? Like, oh, this is fine. You know, you just met this person. Go travel across the desert. Give your life away. You can leave right now. Everything's going to work out, right? That's not something we typically say. But Rebecca demonstrates courage. This is the second quality that she demonstrates that's essential for a godly marriage. Faith that God will work in her situation and can work things out. And while Rebecca's situation may be the extreme example, it's not completely unique. There is a sense in which, and I want us to to really hammer down on this, there's a sense in which we all married strangers, and there's a sense in which we all continue to be married to strangers. And here's what I mean. When you're dating, when you have this experience of falling in love, most people have this, somebody phrased it like this, a surge of artificial virtue and nobility. You all know what I'm talking about? When you're dating, it's like the best of you that comes out, the most fun of you, the most interesting, the most engaging, the most caring, the most pouring yourself out and sacrificing for the other person that comes out. Am I the only one who's experienced this? Right? No, this is what happens. And it's not necessarily meant to be deceptive. It's just like you're just so enamored in love with this person. It's just like this is, this is the best of me, a surge of artificial virtue and nobility. But guess what? Does that last forever? Is that something you can continue to do forever? Eventually, the clothes don't all make it into the hamper, do they? Eventually, not all the dishes make it into the dishwasher. That's what happens in marriage. And not only that, but people change significantly over time. Is this something that you've noticed that people change significantly over time? And, and this happens in a couple of ways. First of all, there's research out that your personality can change significantly in the course of five years. So that if you were to take one personality test and then take a second one five years later, they may have different results. In fact, it's likely that some of the results would be different. Imagine how many five-year stints you go through in a lifelong marriage, right? And on a cellular level, between seven and ten years, our body is composed of all brand new cells. So if you're ever angry at somebody and you're like, this is, you're not the person that I married, well, that's kind of true, right? Even on a cellular level, like, yeah, that, well, that's, yeah, that is, that is the case. And it takes a measure, measure of courage to continue to engage with a person who will always, in some sense, be a stranger, who will always, in some sense, have some mystery about them. And if there's some of us that think, well, I can finish my wife's sentences. She's so predictable. Well, that's only because we have stopped exploring and have allowed our lives to become scripted. A lack of effort pretty quickly turns our homes into a rerun of I Love Lucy. Right? I've seen this one before. I know how this goes. And part of that Part of that is because we're not exploring the mystery and drawing up these unknown parts of our spouses. And part of that could be we've lost the sense of mystery because out of fear we have sought to control our spouse or control the information that we share so that our marriage is only ever safe and predictable so that we don't do anything else. But that cost is high. Because if we don't deeply explore the mystery that is our spouse and truly get to know them, 
if we don't open ourselves to being known and engage with the courage that that takes, then there is a longing in us that is not being addressed. We crave adventure. We crave mystery. We, pr- we like safety too, but it's not enough for us. And if that's not being addressed in us, there are a whole host of people who decide to go out and dig, what is it, a series of shallow wells, let's say, instead of digging into the one that's right in front of them, going a bit deeper to find water. And what helps with this process, if we already have care and we have courage, what helps with us continuing to engage with the mystery that is our spouse is our third C, commitment. If you know you will only ever have one well from which to draw water, and you are thirsty, you will dig. In Rebecca's case, the trip across the desert was a one-way ticket. There was, this was, there was no trial pre- period of dating, right? There was none of that, what's that awful phrase we use, that kick the tires phase? Right? It's just awful. This was it, right? She was all in, as was the expectation for all married women at that time. But what makes their marriage unique, why it's held up in, the, in Scripture as unique, is that in their marriage, Isaac was also fully committed. Did you know that he was the only patriarch in the Old Testament that was monogamous, that was faithful to one wife? He is also, not coincidentally, the only one held up as having an ideal marriage in this chapter of Genesis. So, and this is pretty significant. I've heard this, I don't know if you've heard this, people of the uh, critics of the Bible will say things like, well, they were polygamous or they were polyamorous. And the response is, yeah, they were. And it was a bad idea every time, right? Like every time their marriages fall apart. It's not held up as a good example. The paradigmatic marriage of the Old Testament has always been one man and a woman joined in lifelong commitment to each other. That's what it says. And if you've been married for any length of time, you know why this is essential. In marriage, you have two people with very sharp edges that bump up against each other over time. And it's not the most painful process, is it? But eventually, those sharp edges start to wear off and become softer, and the bumping isn't as hard anymore. They begin to smooth over. And in marriage, we are confronted with our character flaws, our impulsive hedonism, and our natural selfishness, selfishness, like no other relationship. In marriage, we have those parts of ourselves of which we are ashamed brought to light. And we are asked to fully embrace another person despite their ugliness that we see. And this is why marriage has the power to be sanctifying, why it is an arena for becoming holier, the place where we can participate in the works of God and become more like Him. A marriage is one of the strongest arenas that we become more like God because of this process of sanctification. Now, culturally, we don't really think of marriage as this crucible that shapes us for holiness anymore. So, when I was um, studying uh, some of the uh, couples counseling classes, I came across this really interesting study by the National Marriage Project and it surveyed men to find out what the number one factor that they had in choosing a spouse was. So what do you think it is for men, right? Like the number one factor in choosing a spouse, somebody that they were going to, you know, maybe spend the rest of their lives with. I mean, some of us, again, these are, these are young men, right? Um, so you might think, well, looks, right? Like that's what, that's what guys are drawn to or, you know, somebody who's fun-loving or, or something else like that. You know what it is? 
It's somebody who won't ask them to change a bit. Somebody who will let them to continue their current life the way that it is. Now, it's funny, I see a lot of smiles out there, right? A lot of eye rolls, because, I mean, could you imagine? But that's what they want. That's what they think that they can have. Finding a woman who would fit into their life so they don't have to change. How miserable would that be? What a sad state of affairs and a missed opportunity. Because in marriage, you gain the opportunity to practice courage. You gain the opportunity to practice telling the hard truth in love. You get to practice setting aside your own interests for the sake of someone else. You get to practice commitment, sticking by someone faithfully in the good times and the bad. Right? We don't, set up, we don't have a marriage contract. We have vows. We have the ability to practice becoming courageous, caring, and committed in a way that can overflow from our marriage because maybe through that practice we become caring, courageous, and committed neighbors. Caring, courageous, and committed members of our community. Maybe through that practice of holiness and sanctification we become the type of people who can genuinely shape the world around us. And who knows what we can do then? So, in marriage we can live out this pattern of life that shapes us, changes us, sanctifies us, makes us holy, and that reflects the relationship that God would have with His people, that Christ has with the church. Which brings us to our second point, the Bride of Christ. We may not have noticed because our lectionary abbreviated the lesson, but this is actually the longest chapter in Genesis. And it's central to the whole story. In fact, when Scripture does this, when it puts one story in the center of a book, that's because that's the central story. It does it on purpose. And in part, it's because this love story of Isaac and Rebekah sort of redeems Abraham. Rebekah is described as being just like her father-in-law, leaving her homeland, leaving her family, showing great hospitality demonstrating faithfulness to God. She's, in a way, a second Abraham. But more significantly, this story is central because marriage is central to God's story with us. The Bible begins and ends with marriage, in Genesis and in Revelation. In Genesis, we know the story. There's Adam and Eve, right? The first couple. It's not good that Adam should be alone, so God splits Adam in half. You know the word rib that's in the King James? It's not rib, it's side. Uh, splits Adam in half and pulls out of Adam a man and a woman, who, when they come together, become one flesh. It's our first marriage. And then what we see in Revelation, when God comes again to dwell with His people in fullness, there's a description of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus is described as the bridegroom and the church his bride. You remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross and that spear was stuck into his side? Do you remember what came out? Blood and water. The Eucharist and the baptism that makes the church the church. Out of Jesus' own side, the church was birthed to be brought into union with him as his bride, with Jesus as our bridegroom. We're to be joined to God in His self-sacrificial offering. 
Looking through the Bible, there is no end of places, by the way, that Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom explicitly and the church as his bride. But there's something important about this. His relationship with us is not patterned after our idea, our fallen idea of marriage. Rather, it's our marriages that are supposed to follow the pattern of his relationship with his church. Paul says as much in Ephesians. You know that text about husbands laying down their lives for their wives and wives submitting to their husbands? You all know that one? I always see people get a little uncomfortable at that one. Um, we can explain it another day. But what Paul does is he, does, he goes through this whole text in Ephesians about how marriages are supposed to work properly. He says, but I'm not even talking about your marriages. I'm talking about Christ's marriage to the church. And we see this in Jesus laying down his life for us on the cross, the perfect pattern, the perfect image of the perfect spouse. Because as a church, we are married to a spouse who is perfectly faithful, perfectly honest, perfectly compassionate, perfectly caring, who wants to know us fully and wants us to fully know Him. And those same qualities that we bring to an earthly marriage are those we bring into our relationship with God. How else would we approach God? That National Marriage Project survey, right? God, I'll be in a relationship with you, but I don't want you to change anything about me. I don't want you to change anything about my lifestyle. I don't want you to change anything about my beliefs or my preferences. As a as church, as the bride of Christ, that's not what we're looking for, and that's not what it is to be married to Jesus Christ. Instead, what we bring into our marriage as the church with our bridegroom is care and hospitality, right? Our expressions of love and devotion to Him. We bring courage, letting God into those places of ourselves where even we are afraid to enter to allow Him to work on us and make us whole. And then we pursue Christ ever deeper to learn the mystery of His relationship with us. As with our earthly marriages, by the way, if your relationship with God is boring, it's because you aren't digging deeply enough. Either you're afraid to let Him in and change you, or you're not diving further into Him and participating in what He is doing because I can promise you God is not boring. I can promise you that walking by faith is not boring. Living as God has called you to live is not boring. And finally, we bring into our relationship with God commitment. We give our lives to God and not in the vain pursuit of other shallow wells. Now, there are those of us here who have had unhappy earthly marriages. And we've experienced heartbreak and disappointment. Marriage, understatement of the year, marriage is tough, Right? And it could either make saints out of us or tear us apart, or both. But there is healing for the brokenhearted and plenteous redemption in Christ. The church is a place of healing as his bride, a place to experience the love of God and to redeem its earthly counterpart. And for those of us who are yet married, God's Spirit is actually present with us in those marriages. There's a great section of Malachi 2 where God says that it's by His Spirit that He unites two people. That's why in weddings we bring people before the church. And in some traditions, there's actually a stole wrapped around their hands, right, to signify the church uniting these two people. The Spirit of God that is at work in their marriages to unite two to each other. And in these places, there is spiritual grace that is poured out by God, right? We talk about sacraments as this outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. 
Well, that's the grace that God works through us, through His Holy Spirit, as we offer up our marriages to Him to redeem and put Him at the center. And then we get to experience the sanctification that comes through Him, this, this holiness process, so that even our marriages would be transformed and would be able to be a witness to His great goodness, that people could see what God, the work that God has done in us and have that point toward Him, the ultimate bridegroom of His bride. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, You have given us this pattern, this way of participating in relationships with each other that's modeled after how we are to approach You. Lord, I pray that we would walk with humility, that we would learn to love and be self-giving, that we would continue to be courageous and explore the inner mysteries of our partners. Lord, You are the great God of redemption who can heal all wounds I pray that we would further unite ourselves to you, that we would offer ourselves fully to you and to receive you fully in return. And it's through your Son, Jesus Christ's name, that we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.